I'm wondering this morning if you realize just how much we love power. For example, who doesn't love the power of speaking a word and it being done? I'd like to refer to this as the Pharaoh complex. You know, let it be written, let it be done. Who doesn't love that kind of authority, that kind of power? I mean, parents love it with their kids. Instruction given, walk away, come back two seconds later, and it's done. Do your homework, wash the dishes, clean your bedroom, be nice to your sister. You speak, it's done. Now, that doesn't happen all the time, but you love it when it does. And kids are the exact same way, aren't they? Mom, I want to stay at a friend's house. Dad, I need money. Mom, it's 5 p.m. and I need a ride to practice. Oh, yeah, when's practice? 5 p.m. Right? Every single one of us, no matter how old we are, want to speak and have it be done. So we all have a Pharaoh complex. But it's more than that, isn't it? I mean, everybody knows guys love power, things that are big and fast. Some guys love the power of cars with big engines, whether it's a Hemi V8 monster truck or a sports car that goes zero to 60 in three seconds. Other guys love the power of the most recent gadget, latest iPhone, fastest processor. What is that all about? It's all about power. And women are no different They don't love things that are big and fast, or at least in general, but they love the power of relationships. So they want to know and be known and want the power to influence. Certainly the power to influence their kids. Right attitude, right behavior, right grades, right job, right spouse. But they also love the power to influence their husbands. In fact, Genesis 3 says your desire is for your husband. That's not a sexual desire, but a sinful desire for power. And it's true. That's why we laugh at the funny little adage that, yes, the man is the head, but the woman is the neck. And she turns the head wherever she wishes. What is that all about? It's about power, the power to influence. There's tons of other examples. The power of money of sex, of knowledge, of education, who you know, and what you know. But we value power. It's inherent in who we are. And yet we all agree with the famous quote that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Here's the deal. God is not like man. The power of God is not like the power of man. So what I want us to understand this morning, in particular, on Easter Sunday, is the power of the resurrection. Because Christ's resurrection from the dead happened. It's certain. It's true. It is a reality. And as a result, there are significant implications for our lives. Namely, that we should repent and believe in Jesus. So the fact that Jesus was crucified on Good Friday, dead and buried in the grave for three days, and rose again from the dead Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago, should impact the way that we live every single day of our lives. And it does when we believe. 
So that's resurrection power, which includes the power to change, the power to suffer with joy, and the power to press on. Not only to know the Lord Jesus more and more, but the power to be with Jesus for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness will reign and one day in which we will have our very own resurrected bodies. So that's where we're going this morning. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 is on page 981. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, encourage you to have your Bible open this morning and to have my outline right in your Bible. I will be walking right through the outline, right through the text this morning. Philippians chapter 3, page 981. As you're turning, let me fill you in on the background. Because at this point, the Apostle Paul, the man who wrote the book of Philippians, is in prison. So he is in a Roman jail. Why is he in prison? Because he won't stop talking about the resurrected Christ. So he's literally going on and on about the reality of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection to such an extent that they locked him up. They put him in prison. And yet, look at what he says. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith." that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So point number one, the power to change. And specifically, A, the power to rejoice. Because Paul starts out with a command in verse one, right? He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you again is no trouble to me. And it is safe for you. And of course, it's no trouble for Paul. He's been talking about rejoicing during this entire book. And I want you to recognize, I I want you to acknowledge this morning, that's not normal. That's not normal at all. Normal people who are imprisoned, suffering and enduring the pain of incarceration, especially in a Roman jail, are not rejoicing. 
and are not commanding others to rejoice. And yet 15 times in four chapters, so four times per chapter, he is talking about rejoicing. You have to understand that's resurrection power. To cause a person to have such a radical transformation in perspective that suffering for Christ causes you to rejoice. And note the orientation and the object of his joy. Because he's urging us to rejoice in the Lord. But why? Why is that so important, Paul? Well, he tells us verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing is no trouble to me. And notice it is safe for you. So rejoice in the Lord. Why? So that you're not rejoicing in other things. Earthly things, worldly things, lesser things than rejoicing in Christ. Because it's a safeguard for our eternal well-being that our hope is in Jesus. And in his death, his burial, and his resurrection from the grave. Which has everything to do with the power of the resurrection. And the power of God to radically transform our lives. Because Paul was an absolutely transformed man. So be the power to transform. Look at what he says Verse 4 says that if anyone has reason to put their confidence in the flesh, it's him. Why? Verse 5, because he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law. Paul says he was blameless. What's Paul's point? He's saying that if anyone has perfect credentials for a works-based righteousness, it's him. So if a person standing before God was ever about position or pedigree, who you know, what you know, how well connected you are, and your own man-made ability to make yourself righteous before a holy God, Paul is arguing, I'm the man. That's what he's saying. In fact, he even persecuted the church. Acts chapter 7, he watched Stephen get stoned to death. Acts chapter 9, he went to Damascus in order to find Christians to drag them down to Jerusalem so that he could have them killed. Make the connection. The people that he's listed in verse 2 that Paul describes as dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh are the people who are just like Paul used to be. So they're Judaizers who are persecuting Christians in Philippi, just like Paul did. Now they're trying to convince them to jump through religious hoops in order to be in a right relationship with God. So they're arguing, keep the rules, keep the regulations, make sure that you're circumcised, make sure that you eat the right food, you keep the right days, you follow all the right rules and rituals and regulations. Paul's saying... Absolutely not. That is rubbish. Rules-based righteousness is rubbish. Look at verse 7. He says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage, in order that I may gain Christ. 
Here's the question you should be asking. What happened to this guy? What happened to the Apostle Paul? Well, number one, he saw the resurrected Christ. In fact, later in his life, he testified to this reality. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. So Paul's declaring both in 1 Corinthians 15 and right here in Philippians 3 that the reason for his radical transformation has everything to do with him seeing with his own eyes the resurrected Christ. So the power to change is directly linked to the power of the resurrection. In fact, if you would, go ahead and flip to Acts chapter 9 with me. I want to make sure you see this for yourself. Acts chapter 9, keep your hand in Philippians 3 and flip backwards. Acts chapter 9, verse 1, page 917, if you're using one of our Bibles in the chairs in front of you. I want you to see in the Apostle Paul's life the power to change and how radical it is. Acts chapter 9 Verse 1 says, Saul or Paul, Paul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord when he went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, meaning if he found any Christians, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, or Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul, or Paul, rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus, and for three days he was without sight. So Paul saw the resurrected Christ, and as a result was blind for three days, just like Christ was in the grave for three days. And during that time, the Lord sent a man by the name of Ananias to preach the good news of the gospel to him. And verse 18 says, look at verse 18, that immediately after hearing the good news of the gospel, that immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose, was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And then what do you think he did? Did he just go back to the same old way of life? Doing the same old things for the same old reasons? Absolutely not. 
Look at verse 21. It says, and immediately. So the next thing that he did, right away and immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. Are you seeing the radical transformation that took place in Paul's life? I mean, he went from being a persecutor of Jesus to being a proclaimer of Jesus. So a person who killed people who believed in Jesus to a person who declared Jesus as the Son of God so that they might have life in his name. Do you see the change? That's a pretty radical transformation in a person's life. And what is the single explanation for why that transformation took place? He witnessed the resurrected Christ. So the power to change has everything to do with the power of the resurrection. Do you see that? Do you agree with that? Is that not crystal clear in our passage this morning? That's the change that happened in Paul. He saw the resurrected Christ. And he's declaring it. So flip back to Philippians chapter 3. Because that reality has radical implications. Not only for Paul's life, but our lives as well. Look at what he says. This is number two, the power to suffer. Philippians 3, 7. Paul says, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Notice how that's in the past tense. Whatever gain I had, I counted, past tense, as lost for the sake of Christ. He's talking about what happened in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus. Now he switches to the present tense. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And lose them he did. Because Paul was immediately written off by his colleagues. So he used to be a Pharisee of Pharisees. Verse 5. So an influential man in the Jewish community with friends in high places. That's all gone. Used to have tremendous power and prestige. Used to have position and authority. That's all gone. He doesn't even have the security of his own home. Instead, he's a traveling evangelist with no fixed residence other than prison, of course. That's where he is right now, writing this letter. Yet he's not complaining, is he? No, he's rejoicing. He's not upset about this transaction. No, he is rejoicing. You would be totally misunderstanding Paul if you think he's somehow indulging in some sort of pity party here. Instead, he says, verse 8, I count all things as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, notice that comes from the law, so a works-based righteousness, a righteousness that comes by my own efforts, not the law. The law was never intended to have you actually become righteous. It was intended to show us our sin. Paul's rejecting a works-based righteousness. And he's arguing for a faith-based righteousness. 
Again, verse 9, being found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith alone and Christ alone, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul's arguing for justification by faith. And he's doing so by way of comparison. So putting on one side everything that the world has to offer, power, position, prestige, all the right friends from all the right places with all the right education from all the right schools doing all the right things, all according to the world. That's on one side. Now the other side is the righteousness that only comes by faith in the Lord Jesus. And he's weighing and he's measuring and he's saying it's a no-brainer. The choice is obvious. I choose Christ and his righteousness every time, no comparison. And why is that? Because it works. I mean, that's the whole point of verse 9. A righteousness based on our own effort is never, ever going to give us a right standing before God. Why is that? Because we sin against God every single day. Romans 3 makes that abundantly clear that there's none righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Not even one. Instead, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if we're banking on our own righteousness, our own good deeds in order to stand in the presence of a holy God when we die and face judgment, then we're in big trouble. Because our works-based righteousness will never, ever be sufficient. Which is why Paul puts his faith in Christ. I mean, do you understand? That's why Christ's life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection are so important. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. So he's the only person in the history of the world who lived his entire life without sin. Which is why his death on the cross in our place is the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And his resurrection confirms it. That it was acceptable to God the Father who raised him from the dead and allowed him to be seen by over 500 people over the course of 40 days, all as confirmation that he ascended and he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So the only way to be righteous, the only way to have a right standing before God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So the power of his death, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead. So let me just ask, are you seeing how obvious the choice is for you this morning? That Jesus, as a result of his death, burial, and resurrection, is the only way to be reconciled to a holy God. That all your own efforts, your own good deeds, your own promises to God that you'll be a better person tomorrow. It's all rubbish in your attempt to be in a right relationship with God. I appeal to you, count the cost with the Apostle Paul and declare this morning that I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ.
which no doubt is a radical commitment. It's a radical commitment to Christ. And yet it's a no-brainer when you grab a hold of the reality of the resurrection. Because Jesus really did die. Jesus really was buried. Jesus really did rise on the third day. Which means Jesus really is God. And Jesus really can forgive you of your sin. And he really can make you right with God for all eternity. Because whoever gains Christ, whoever believes in Christ, trusts in Christ, rests in Christ, gains him for all eternity. But there is a cost. And I want to be clear with you about that this morning. There is a a cost. You really will suffer in the here and now if you put your faith in Jesus. Not sure if you're aware of that. Look around at our current culture. People aren't too excited about Christians. There's a cost. But then, when Christ returns, the glory of a resurrected body and being in God's presence for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness will reign forever and ever. Paul walks through that process, verses 8 through 11. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Let's move to B, sanctification through suffering. Verse 10, Paul says that I may know him, the Lord Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and may share notice in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's the process of sanctification through suffering which causes us to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. But that's obviously difficult, isn't it? To suffer like Jesus, becoming like Jesus, Paul says, in his death. So how is that possible? Well, he tells us through the power of his resurrection. You see, what you need to understand is what Paul tells us in Romans 8, 11. That when you truly put your faith in Christ, you're given the gift of the Spirit, which is the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. So you literally have the power of the resurrection indwelling you, which empowers you, enables you, invigorates you, and motivates you with a greater power and ability than any Hemi V8 engine. It's the power of the resurrection in you that enables you to endure Christ-like sufferings, so that you might know him in greater and greater ways. But let me ask you this. Who's the best example of this? Especially as we sit here this morning on Easter Sunday. Who would be the best example of people who demonstrate resurrection power in order to endure suffering? How about the disciples? The disciples who were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. As I told you, after he rose from the grave, he appeared to over 500 people, including the disciples who were empowered by the gift of the Spirit. If you remember Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. What did they do? They went out and they proclaimed his death, burial, and resurrection and the salvation that's only available in him. Acts 1.8, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. But what you might not know this morning is how those disciples died. 
Did you know they all died as martyrs for the faith? Which means they died because they were unwavering about the reality of the resurrection. And when I say martyrs, I mean they died horrible deaths. Two were beheaded. Five were crucified, including Peter, who was crucified upside down. One was burned alive. One was stoned to death. And one was thrown off the top of the temple. Now, I don't know about you, but most people aren't willing to die for lies and for hoaxes or for half-truths. But what empowered these men to suffer for their faith in Christ? I'm trying to tell you, the power to suffer has everything to do with the power of the resurrection. And the same is true today. Because if a person doesn't really believe that Jesus is real, that he didn't really die, that he didn't really rise on the third day, then they're not going to suffer for their faith. But if you believe the scriptures and you trust the promises of God and you glory in the fact that Christ died for your sins, that you really are forgiven, that you really are reconciled to God, and you really will be welcomed into his presence for all eternity, that's when you're willing to joyfully suffer. And make this connection. Because you're willing to suffer when two things are radically clear in your mind. Number one, Christ's resurrection from the dead, looking back. First thing that you have to be crystal clear on, he really did rise from the grave. If that's clear in your mind, his resurrection, death, burial, rose on the third day. I just, it's more than just knowing that. I know that. I believe that. I hold that with deep conviction. His resurrection looking back. Second thing we need to know is looking forward and the reality of our resurrection from the dead. Resurrection looking back, resurrection looking forward. Those two things crystal clear in your mind are what enable you to joyfully suffer for Christ's sake. And that's exactly what Paul says. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So looking back at Christ's resurrection and may share in his sufferings, present time, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain looking forward, my own resurrection from the dead. Do you see how that see our glorification in heaven? Because Paul says, verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain looking forward the resurrection from the dead. But when will that happen? That happens when Christ returns. So not just when you die. Now, it's true that absent from the body is present with the Lord, and that is far better. But even better than that will be when Christ returns and he makes all things new, restored, redeemed, new heavens, new earth, in which righteousness reigns. And all who believe in Jesus will dwell with him, and he will be our God, and we will be his people, and there will be no more sin. So we will all be there in the new heavens and the new earth 
with our very own resurrected bodies. So what Paul is declaring is that future glory should motivate absolutely everything we do in the here and now. In fact, as we transition from number two, the power to suffer, to number three, the power to press on, look at what Paul says. Look at his orientation in a forward direction. Look at verse 12. He says, not that I've already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Notice the main idea here, to press on, to persevere in the faith. How are we to persevere? By following Paul's example. And remember, he's in prison for the sake of the gospel. And what's he doing there? He's rejoicing in the Lord Jesus. He's delighting himself in his death, burial, and resurrection, regardless of the circumstances. So he's sharing in Christ's suffering. How does he do that? Through the power of the resurrection. So he is a perfect example for us to follow because he's actually doing it. But what is he pressing on toward? Well, he's certainly pressing on, A, to believe in Christ. In fact, that's why he gives us these negative examples. I mean, look at what he says, verse 18. For many of whom I told you and now tell you, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. How does he describe them? Verse 19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So they're clearly not suffering for Christ's sake. Instead, they're loving the things of this world. Eating, drinking, relaxing, being entertained, proud, arrogant, and self-consumed. Why? Because their minds are set on earthly things. Having your mind set on earthly things is radically different than having your mind set on heavenly things, which includes attaining the resurrection from the dead. So if you're here this morning... And you're not delighting in the cross of Christ for whatever reason. Might be new to Christianity. Might just be here because it's Easter. But if you're not delighting in the cross of Christ, then verse 19 tells you your end is destruction. Why is that? Because God is a holy God. And God will absolutely punish sin. But God is also a loving God seen most clearly in the cross of Christ. 
Because Christ offers to be your substitute. He offers to die the death you deserve to die. And he offers to give you the life that you do not deserve so that you can be forgiven, so you can be reconciled to God, so that you can be joyfully looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness will one day reign with your resurrected body. But this salvation is only available to those who put their faith in Christ. You can't earn your way to heaven. You can't make yourself deserving of it. You can't pull yourself up by the bootstraps and just make yourself a better person. It's only by faith alone in Christ alone. His death on the cross is your only hope of salvation. But it's a glorious hope. And it's a hope that will not disappoint. So let me encourage you to press on to believe in the Lord Jesus so that you can press on to be with the Lord Jesus for all eternity. That's what Paul is talking about. Look at verse 20. That our, that our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. How will he do that? By the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Paul's insisting that genuine Christianity is a Christianity that lives in light of the certainty of future glory. And that future glory will come with resurrection power. Remember where we started this morning. Because absolutely every one of us loves power, right? We, we love power. It's inherent in who we are. But there is no greater power than resurrection power. Christ's resurrection reality. There's no greater power than that. And you see it. What, what would be the greatest power you could ever see? How about this reality? That he will transform every lowly body to be like his glorious body. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, that this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. And if that's not power enough for you, then how about the reality that when Christ comes, he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will reign. How will he do that? Verse 21 tells us, by the power that enables him to subject all things, not some things, all things to himself. That is power like you've never, ever seen before. What I want you to understand and what I want you to long for is that we will all one day have our very own, very real, very physical glorified bodies in heaven with him when he brings the new heavens and the earth here. So many Christians think that somehow our eternal home will be in the lofty mystical heavens and will somehow be there in these disembodied spirits. But that's not the case. 
God designed us as physical beings with physical bodies. And we're called throughout the scripture to live in these physical bodies in such a way that brings glory and honor and praise to our heavenly father. Well, that's exactly what heaven is going to be like. So here's the question that you have to ask yourself. Am I actually looking forward to that day? Am I looking forward to that resurrection reality? I get this. Died, buried, rose again. I believe that. But is that resurrection day impacting the way that you live this day? Are you looking forward to that resurrection reality? Our destiny as believers is to rule and reign with King Jesus to his eternal glory. So one day you and I will become all that God intended us to be, where we will creatively serve and work and play and rest and rejoice and worship him in all that we do with purified hearts and minds and yes, physical bodies forever enjoying the beauty of his new creation because he has promised that he will make all things new. Are you looking forward to that reality? Is that vision in your mind this morning? What should we do? We should press on to believe in Christ all the more, pursuing him, knowing him, delighting in his word and understanding his ways, including verse 10, sharing in his sufferings right now through the power of his resurrection. So the reality that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead indwells us as believers, which means that we have real power Resurrection power to put sin to death. Real power, resurrection power to walk in righteousness. And real power, resurrection power to share in his sufferings. Which only makes us long all the more for that future reality. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that this momentary light affliction is preparing for us. An eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison as we look and we long for the things that are not yet seen. So press on to believe in Christ and press on to be with Christ, which means that we keep our eyes fixed on that future glory. That day when the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend and will transform these lowly bodies to be just like his glorified body, that we might dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth because he is coming back and he will make all things new. Beloved, Let's long for that day and live in light of it today. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, be at work in our minds and in our hearts. We're so prone to live in the present and be consumed by the present, the difficulties, the struggles, 
the sickness, the pain, the suffering. Lord, we lose our way. Oh, I pray that on this Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, that you would be doing a work in our minds and in our hearts, that we would have an orientation, an eternal perspective, looking forward to that future glory. Give us a vision of it, Lord, when we will be with you, where you will be our God and we will be your people and we will have resurrected bodies. We will dwell in the new heavens and the new earth and there will be no more sin, no more pain, no more sorrow. There will be a pure love for God and a love for one another. Oh, I pray that that reality would impact the way that we live right now. Lord, do that good work for our good and for your glory we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.